0: From the newsroom of The Washington Post.
1: Hi, good afternoon. This is Tolu Olorunipa with The Washington Post. Hi, this is
0: Amy Britton calling from The Post. This is Peter Jameson from The Washington Post. This is Post Reports. I'm Martine Powers. It's Wednesday, September 30th. Today, a grim milestone. The lives that have been lost and the people who are left behind. This week, we reached a new bleak point in the pandemic. The worldwide death toll of COVID-19 has now surpassed 1 million people. That's 1 million lives lost in just nine months. And as we've been hearing about and thinking about this huge number, our colleagues at The Post have been trying to grapple with this challenge. How do you make 1 million deaths feel real?
1: I'm Mark Fisher, and I'm a senior editor at the Washington Post. In recent months, I've had the opportunity to work with a number of my colleagues to put together stories about the impact and just the detail of all of these deaths from COVID-19. And so at each big milestone, at 50,000, 100,000, 150,000 deaths, we've asked our colleagues across the country to find cases of families that lost someone to COVID-19. And my fear, as we tried to do a much more ambitious story, which was Looking at the marker of a million deaths across the world, my fear was that there's a kind of sameness to these stories as tragic as each one is individually, and I worried that people were beginning to kind of look past these individual cases, look past the tragedy, uh, becoming numb to it, really. And so we thought about what can we do differently this time in this story that would both drive home to people the pain and the tragedy of what we've all been through, but also give folks a sense of what it's like to report in different countries around the world and in different cultures and to see the kind of the texture of of what this pandemic has done to very different societies. We decided we wanted to follow disease on its path of destruction across the world. And so we looked for statistics that showed when and where the peaks were occurring. Then we went about choosing countries that had some larger meaning. And so obviously we started this story in China. I'm Jerry Shi,
2: and I was the Washington Post correspondent in Beijing until March. The peak in COVID deaths came relatively early in China, the country that was the presumed origin of the disease. That was at a moment when the rest of the world still wasn't fully aware of what was unfolding. But in China, all of 56 million people in Hubei province, including the city of Wuhan, had already been locked down. And stories began to trickle out from Wuhan about the virus's power to spread and kill and how it basically devastated frontline workers especially those who weren't getting the protective equipment that they needed. One of those stories that absolutely gripped China at the time was the story of Liu Fan who was a deputy head nurse at Wuchang Hospital in Wuhan and uh, she was infected on the job in early February.
3: 延長凱和父母記者姐姐
2: her brother, Chang Kai, was a famous filmmaker in Wuhan, and their parents were infected in late January. But because they couldn't get a bed for them in Wuhan's overwhelmed hospitals, they had to take their parents at home, where they infected, in turn, Chang and his wife. On February 14th, Liu, Chang, and their parents were all dead. The Chinese likened it to what they call Miemen, or the brutal punishment for ancient China known as family extermination. The case exposed so much about the situation in China at the time. Public anger towards the government response and the initial cover-up. So when news about the family's death first cropped up, Internet censors actually immediately scrubbed it from the internet and called it fake news orchestrated by foreign forces to smear China's image until Liu's employer, Wuchang Hospital, said no, actually, our nurse did in fact die. In the following days, Chang's colleagues also spoke up, but had to do it anonymously to reporters, and they shared a death note from him in which he described the final tortured months of his life as he took his parents from hospital to hospital, begging and crying, seeking beds for them until finally he realized it was all in vain. He took them home and basically waited for them to die while he was slowly dying himself. My Chinese visa was revoked in March uh, as part of ongoing tensions between the two countries with the U.S. and China. But looking at the country from the outside, it seems like things have healed remarkably quickly.
4: We're gonna turn out these stunning images
5: out of Wuhan, China.
2: In August, one of the water parks in the city had thousands of young people show up without masks, shoulder to shoulder, partying at an electronic music festival. That water park now has about ten or 15,000 people who go every day. People are back at work, transportation is running again, the country took the most draconian measures and stopped the bleeding as quickly as possible. The anger at the government has largely been rolled back with this massive propaganda effort that painted China as a heroic country. And it imbued in the Chinese people that all of the criticism they've gotten uh, internationally is essentially uh, the country being persecuted on the world stage. From both a public health level and on a political level, I think the Chinese government, the Chinese people have both recovered.
1: From China, we moved to Italy, and this is where it first became clear to much of the world that this was indeed going to be a pandemic, that this was indeed going to be something that hit everyone in some terrible way. And so Italy made it sense because that's kind of where the next real explosion of cases was after the beginnings in China.
5: I am Chico Harlan, the Washington Post's Rome Bureau chief. Italy was the second country to have an enormous coronavirus outbreak after China. It started in February, but really exploded and hit a peak in March, and what I remember at the time is that it all felt so inconceivable. Life was breaking apart, the ordering of everybody indoors, all the tourism spots vacant. There was so much fear, and then of course just unimaginable death tolls. The country every day would announce how many people had died, and by Late March, it was like multiple plane crashes, every day. Another 651 deaths nationwide over the past 24 hours.
1: 683. 800 Italian dead announced on Saturday. Death toll in Italy has risen by 919.
5: On March 27th, there were 919 deaths recorded alone. Along with my colleague Stefano Petrelli, we went back and found two of the people who had died that day. Silverio and Carla Polini. They were husband and wife and lived in the north. They were both in their seventies and they died in the same hospital in separate rooms about three hours apart. We talked to their sons who have so many memories. They weren't with them in the hospital, but they remember trying to get information about their parents' condition. And they were pretty certain that at least one of their parents would survive. Papa pensavo, io l'ho convinto, ma anche il giorno prima. Still, they were worried enough to be sleeping with their phone ringers turned on. And then in the early hours of March 27th, one of the brothers got a call about their mom.
1: Il venerdì mattina alle 2.51 mi han telefonato per la mamma. Io ho chiamato subito Gianfranco, però ce lo aspettavamo, Ce aspettavamo.
5: Soon after the other brother got a call about their dad. And they've been trying to put the pieces together ever since. That was six months ago. And now we've gotten used to higher death tolls in every country, enormous numbers. But Italy really has emerged as a country that has done a decent job controlling the virus. Surely better than other countries, even in Western Europe. People are wearing masks, doing most of their socializing outdoors. Italy does have a degree of polarization, tons of regional differences, but the, the tragedy of the spring kind of registered across the nation, even in places that weren't hard hit. And that lasting memory is part of a defense mechanism because it keeps people on guard. Of course, nobody knows what will happen in the winter.
1: This is a a pandemic that divided countries from within. And yet it unites the world in this common anguish and loss. And that became clear as we followed the disease across the world. In the United States the peak was fairly early on uh, it was back in march in new york city and environs and so as i scanned some of the cases across the country i looked for someone who was in new york i looked for someone who died right around the peak period of deaths and i looked for someone who was representative in some ways of those who we lost and so I landed on Rosario Gonzalez, who was a paraprofessional, a kind of teacher's aide in a school in East Harlem in New York City, in in Manhattan. She was a remarkable person. Her story, just on the face of it, was remarkable because she was working full-time as a paraprofessional at age 91 and had been in that school for 35 years in a special needs school in a tough neighborhood. They used to call her Miss Rosa. Her
3: name was Rosario. And when we used to go visit,
1: she would talk
3: about the kids and how they loved her and how she loved them. And that's what made her get up to go to work every day.
1: Her son, Jose.
3: Jose Gonzalez, born in New York City, Spanish Harlem, living in Sacramento, California right now.
1: She was someone who utterly thrived in connecting with the people around her. And this became kind of the theme of her life, someone who brought people together.
3: Oh my God, did she ever love to cook. She would always cook pasteles and pork and pork roast and rice. And she was traditional, a traditional Puerto Rican as... I mean, it's like she was still in the island, you know?
1: Even in a large family, she had an extraordinary way to make people feel like they were the only one that mattered.
3: She was funny and she would love and she would take care of the family just like she knew how to take care of us. She, ra- she raised us.
1: So it was really uh, kind of heartwarming to talk with her uh, loved ones about who she was. But it was also at the same time terribly sad and and, uh, really overall a bittersweet experience because that death, like way too many of the others in this pandemic, took place the opposite way from the way all societies have found Ways to come together around death, to create rituals of, of families and, and loved ones. None of that could happen when Rosario Gonzalez died. The middle of March to the beginning of April, we
3: didn't get any calls. So we put in a wellness call to New York.
1: So the police, an ambulance crew, and Jose's daughter, Jasmine, came together to the fifth floor apartment. No one responded to their knocks. And finally, the officers had to break down the door.
3: Forcing it open and finding my brother already dead, and my mother breathing, but really almost out of it.
1: They found Rosario's son, Carlos, who's 65 years old, in his bed, already dead of COVID. And they found Rosario in her bed, struggling to breathe. They rushed
3: her to Mount Sinai Hospital in New York, where she lasted one day.
1: April 5th, uh, which turns out to have been uh, just about the peak of the deaths in New York City. 580 people in New York City died on the same day as Rosario Gonzalez.
3: I was very close to my Bob. I was even closer to my younger brother, Charlie. He was a loving brother like a, like no one's ever had. I miss both of them, but I miss him because he wasn't supposed to go yet. He was only 65. There was no funeral. You know, we've been used to burying people and acknowledging them. And saying prayers and all. We didn't have any of that.
1: Despite not having had a proper funeral, despite having to put their mother in the ground in a plain pine box rather than a finer kind of coffin, this is a family organized around Rosario Gonzalez, and I think they are finding this a way to to come together even remotely, they're determined to give her the farewell that she deserves, although that may be much delayed and tempered by time. From New York and the United States, we went to Brazil, uh, where the disease came in its fullest impact a bit later, and then quite powerfully, in less than 200 days, nearly 137,000 Brazilians died of the coronavirus. And this was after the president of Brazil had encouraged people to continue with their lives as normal.
4: My name is Terry McCoy, and I am the Washington Post correspondent in Rio de Janeiro. The peak of the coronavirus pandemic here in Brazil has really been something that has been more of an extremely long plateau. It started around mid-April and just continued on all the way until around mid-July and is even continuing on now. But during the period in which things were at their darkest, particularly here in Rio de Janeiro, there was a feeling that just the the hospital system was just coming apart. There was a a line of more than a thousand people to try and get into the public healthcare system, a thousand coronavirus patients. For this story, we decided to interview the family of a woman named Patricia Beatriz. And the reason why we interviewed them was because the story is just heartbreaking. And just one more quiet death in a country that has experienced far too many of them. She was a young mother Uh, 38 with three children and another on the way. She was eight months pregnant with a daughter, the daughter that they had long waited for. Her husband was a supervisor at a meatpacking plant and there was an outbreak at the plant and uh, he ended up bringing the virus home and he survived. He recovered quickly from the virus, but she ultimately died as a result of it. The doctor's were able to save the baby, but she died before she had the chance to meet her daughter.
3: Então falando sobre a minha filha Patrícia Beatriz.
4: Her mother Carmen talked about a young woman who pretty much wouldn't be stopped. That she was this person that she kept on saying was was her own boss. She was a person who loved to dance and was hopeful.
3: Era ela ter essas coleções para que ela pudesse dançar junto com as amigas.
4: She had long blonde hair, and um, her mother compared her hair to flowing like like honeywood. But she was also someone who frequently checked in and uh, sent these messages that were, you know, almost almost heartbreakingly banal. That her mother now listens to messages about shipping instructions
3: or
4: messages about what traffic conditions were that day.
3: It's blocked for a car for a car for a car
4: And you can hear in these messages just how close the mother and the daughter were that they would exchange messages like that frequently they were all heartbroken by obviously the loss of patricia you know the difficult thing was both just the the surprise of it not realizing that someone so young could be taken at the beginning of this pandemic obviously was something that was widely reported to mostly just affect the oldest. In Brazil, it's been something very different. Uh, there have been a lot of people who have been young who have died. And this is something, when, when Patricia um, died herself, I mean, this was this was a shock to her family, but it also reveals the, the sad reality of the coronavirus pandemic in Brazil. In Brazil now, I mean, there's a sense that it is getting a lot better there's a sense that it's past. The reality is that there's still a very active coronavirus pandemic. There are still every day tens of thousands of cases reported every single day. In the neighborhood I live in Ipanema, a lot of people wear masks, but if you drive an hour out of the city, no one's wearing masks, absolutely no one. But the, the, the commonality is everyone's pretty much just back on the streets and living their life as they used to. And I think this is, suggests how many Brazilians are just kind of living with it now, that this is just the reality of it, the, the virus is here, and nothing you do personally is going to change it, so you might as well just get back on living the life that you want to as best you can.
1: From Brazil, we went to really the current day in India where the disease has been at a very high rate for quite some time now. The curve there trended upward for months and then just kind of settled in and with it a kind of numbness about the extraordinary numbers of deaths. And yet each of those obviously is a case unto itself.
6: I'm Joanna Slater and I'm the India Bureau Chief for The Washington Post. It appears that India hit the peak number of cases and deaths earlier this month, but no one is really sure. It's not clear whether that was a peak or a prelude to something worse to come. The numbers right now are still very high, with nearly 90,000 new cases and more than 1,100 deaths every day. We decided to profile a man named Ganesh Tikone, who lived in a village in Western India in the state of Maharashtra. He died on September 8th. What struck me about his story was the desperate struggle his family faced to access care. It's always been difficult for the poor to get the medical care they need, and that problem has intensified in tragic ways during the pandemic. Ganesh had... Dangerously low levels of oxygen in his blood, but he couldn't get a bed at a hospital. Everywhere he and his brother went said that they were full, so they went home to the small house where they lived together with both of their families. To avoid infecting their wives and kids, they both slept in a covered outdoor area, and the next morning Ganesh was dead. for hours they tried to get a vehicle to take his body to the cremation ground and when they couldn't a relative and local officials bundled up the body and borrowed a cart from a neighbor uh, that a neighbor used to sell fish and rolled uh, his body through the streets We talked to members of Ganesh's family, local officials, doctors, and a hospital administrator. Ganesh's brother Manish also tested positive, although his case was uh, relatively mild. And uh, we spoke to him right after he had returned home. In that conversation, it's really the enormity of what has happened The shock, the inability to explain uh, how this uh, tragedy uh, could have happened uh, to the family that that sticks with me. His anger at feeling like the system is stacked against uh, families like his. Ganesh and their families live together and now Manish is responsible for everyone economically. And that's just a very difficult burden for, uh, for him to bear. We also spoke with his 18-year-old daughter, Sonika. And of course, for them, it's just a catastrophe that will uh, shape the rest of their lives, the loss of a beloved parent and their whole sense of security. I think a certain numbness has set in. India had a very severe lockdown at the start of the crisis, which failed to turn the tide and also exacted a staggering economic cost. And things have been reopening ever since. Schools, as of now, are basically the only thing that remains closed. Some people point to the fact that India's death rate per million people is considerably lower than in Brazil uh, or the United States. Of course, those are not exactly the countries you want to use as a yardstick right now. And as one epidemiologist said to me, scorecards are transient and what really matters here is the human tragedy.
1: One million is obviously a big round number it's a it's a dramatic number it's a, a frightening number when you talk about that many deaths when we saw that we were reaching this one million marker across the world, that just seemed to be something that cried out for attention, and yet not attention in that broad way of huge numbers, but uh, in a much more intimate way of looking at individual cases and stories of families that had been through this trauma. The purpose of, of, of doing it this way is, is really to kind of lay down a marker and to, to bring people back to what it felt like when the gravity of this pandemic first became clear because we've all adjusted to it in one way or another. And while life is not nearly normal, there is a kind of sameness that sets in and we we kind of find new patterns. And so this was an attempt to kind of bring us all back to that moment when we saw just how damaging this was to everyone's way of life. And in doing so, kind of bring people to both a sense of common purpose around finding a way out of this predicament, but also a sense of realization that although we live in different countries and different cultures, this disease has hit people in remarkably similar ways around the world, and they have reacted with very basic human instincts of seeking to be together and to come together, even in a situation where that is almost impossible.
0: Mark Fisher is a senior editor at The Post. You can find a link to the One Million Deaths Project from The Washington Post in our show notes and at postreports.com. That's it for today's episode. Thanks for listening. Tomorrow on Post Reports, we'll be sharing the full first episode of a new podcast series. It's called Canary, The Washington Post Investigates. I deserve to feel safe and so does this community. How many people have to hold their sisters, their friends, their lovers or their daughters while they weep because of the things that this man has done? This man said himself that he's sick and he told you that he has a problem. Why don't you take his word for it? I certainly do. The whole series drops tomorrow. You can listen to the first episode on our show or subscribe to Canary on your podcast app.